The Mass in Slow Motion by Father Ronald Knox Sermon 9, Secret Prayers, Preface I will praise thee with the angels for company, bowed low before thy holy temple. We have just got to the secret prayers. Why is it that the priest says a lot of the Mass under his breath, instead of shouting out the Latin for everybody to hear? Even in a learned institution like this, where some of you have probably got onto the third conjugation, honestly, I don't know. Roughly speaking, I think it's true to say that the priest at low mass says aloud all the parts that are sung at a high mass, and murmurs the rest. Roughly speaking, at a high mass, the priest only murmurs when the choir shouts. But which way about was it? Did the priest say to himself, I can't be bothered to say this bit out loud? with those sopranos howling down on me all the time? Or did the organist say, The holy priest doesn't seem to have much to say for himself just now. Come on, boys, let him have it. I don't know. I only know that I always rather wish to speak these secret prayers after the offertory were said out loud, because they are so very attractive, some of them. Take the one for last Sunday. This sacrifice, Lord, we bring to win thy favor. Bring our sins for thy mercy to pardon Bring our wavering hearts for thee to point them to their goal. Don't tell me that isn't a jolly prayer. Or take the one on the eve of Passion Sunday. Lord, we beseech thee, accept these offerings and restore us to thy favor, subduing with merciful violence even rebel wills like ours. Don't tell me that isn't a jolly prayer. But I've got to mumble them. However, there's one good thing about it. It's a trap for the unwary. It catches you out if you weren't attending. I don't mean that Holy Church put the secret prayers in for that reason. Holy Church wouldn't be unsporting like that. No, it's just a lucky accident that they come here. You see, it's just halfway through the Mass, and we aren't all of us very good at keeping our attention fixed for more than a quarter of an hour. Some of us are sleepy, of course. You have a rotten night with the girl in the next bed talking in her sleep like that. And even if you aren't actually in danger of dozing off, your attention has perhaps begun to wander. Why does that girl in front of you wear pleats when they obviously don't suit her? And so on and so on, per omnia secula seculorum. Ah, you weren't expecting that. You thought I was going on mumbling to myself. Even the server was caught napping, really. He only said amen because he couldn't think of anything else to say. Well, Dominus Fabiscum. Are you with me now? Et cum spiritu tuo good. All right, that's all right. Then, sir sum corda, lift up your hearts. It doesn't mean that you're going to concentrate your attention on a particular valve somewhere inside your chest and just imagine you has having to heave it up into the air. God isn't just up in the air. He's everywhere. It means take a deep breath and let your whole self go out to God. In what spirit? Penitence? No. Confidence? No. Adoration? No, but you're getting warmer. Love? Not exactly. No. Gratitude. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. All the other things, too, of course, are perfectly in place, but the characteristic attitude of the Christian people in worshiping their God is thankfulness. That is why we call it the Holy Eucharist, first and foremost. The Mass means reminding ourselves of our redemption. Jesus Christ was crucified for me. First and foremost, then, we are catching our breath at a great deliverance and thanking God for it. That's what I tell you when I say "Gratias agamus Domino Deo Nostru, and you agree with me, dignum you ad justum est, you say, by all means, obviously, it's the right and proper thing to do. 
How disconcerting it is now and again to come across people who pick up your words and examine them and turn them inside out. You know the sort of thing I mean when an old lady says to you, I'm very sorry to hear your mama has broken her leg. And you say, yes, it is a rather a bore for her, isn't it? And then the old lady gets really wrong. My dear, when you've broken your leg, you will realize that it's a great deal worse than boring. It's an extremely painful and dangerous accident. Of course, I know that your dear mother is a very energetic woman, and I expect she finds the time to hang her heavy head on your hands, which I suppose is what you really meant by a bore. But I hope you will realize that she is having a very painful time, and the less shrieking and jumping there is in the passages, the sooner she will get well. Of course, you know all that, and you long to say something, but you're too polite to say it, and the incident has to be regarded as closed. I think the priest is a tiny bit like that when you say, Dignum et eustimest, right and proper. He goes on mumbling away, Dignum et eustimest, right and proper, I should think that it was right and proper. You mustn't mind me, priest, get like that. Dignum est, it's a worthy for our dignity as human beings. Eustimest, it is suited to our position as creatures. Equimest, it is only fair, since we are reprieved criminals, that we should always be giving thanks wherever we are. And then there's a, firth, a fourth word he uses, Salutare, what does it mean? I don't know what translation they give you in your book, probably conducive to salvation or something like that. But I don't think that's the idea. The meaning is, it's a healthy sign. It's a healthy sign when a Christian finds himself at all sorts of odd times and in all sorts of queer places wanting to thank God. You know the sort of thing a doctor will call a healthy sign if he's talking about the condition of your body. A good appetite, for example. If he's told that you got outside a couple of pancakes when you're supposed to have measles, he says that it is a healthy sign. And that's a great thing about gratitude in the Christian soul. It may not be very important in itself, but it is a healthy sign. The person who is continually grousing and nursing grievances may, all, may be all right. Our temperaments and even our digestions have a good way to deal with that. You can't tell. But if a person is the other way, is always grateful to God for the small mercies and the things that, don't, that do go right, I think that it is a good indication that he or she is on the road to heaven. That business about being grateful to God always, all the time, is of course leading up to the next fact which calls for our attention. The preface isn't the same all the year round. At the different seasons of the year, we commemorate the different stages, stages by which our Lord Jesus Christ achieved our redemption. And at each of those seasons, we give a fresh twist to the great chant of thankfulness, which we call the preface. At all times and in all places, we ought to be giving you thanks, Almighty God. But it does so happen that this particular time, Christmas or Easter or Pentecost or whatever it may be, is one in which the gratitude we feel ought to be something quite exceptional, something quite out of the common. This was the time when you became a little baby at Bethlehem. How grateful we ought to be. This was the time when you conquered death for us. How grateful we ought to be. This was the time when you sent the Holy Spirit to cheer us up on our lonely march through the world without you. How grateful we ought to be. Grateful always, of course, but more grateful now than, now than ever. Why those prefaces are so good, I don't quite know. They are not frightfully good or frightfully clear Latin, but they manage to get a lot in, somehow, in a small space. At Christmas, we have to be specially grateful because a new light has flashed across the world, a lightning flash in which we saw God made visible at Bethlehem, and ever since our eyes are homesick for the things we cannot see. At the Epiphany, 
We have to be specially grateful because this light of God made immortal is a kind of beacon star which heralds the dawn for our own immortality. In Passiontide, we have to be especially grateful because on Calvary, Jesus Christ beat Satan with his own weapons, found him wielding like a club the tree of paradise, which was the cause of Adam's undoing, and knocked him out of another tree, the tree of the cross. In Easter time, we have to be especially grateful at this season when Christ himself is offered for us as our Paschal Lamb, who by his bloodshed for us has destroyed the sentence of death passed against us. At the Ascension, we have to be specially grateful because after rising again, he visibly ascended into heaven, so that the reunion of his manhood with the eternal being of God might make us all divine. At Pentecost, we have to be specially grateful because now that he sits at God's right hand, He has sent the Holy Spirit on us, his adopted children, and made the whole world thrill with gracious influence. Strange, primitive phrases, not in the least, the well-worn language of our theological copybooks, they take us back to a time when, dare we say it, theology was somehow richer because it wasn't all so terribly precise. Even Lent has a preface of its own, although we don't ordinarily think of Lent as something we ought to be grateful for. We always connect it with not eating sweets or something like that. But even in Lent, we ought to be especially grateful for this opportunity of chasing on our bodies and so lending wings to our souls, of obtaining through the observance of it fresh strength for our struggle on earth, fresh joys of retrospect in heaven when it's all over. It's almost a pity, I think, that for so large a part of the year, we have to be content with two prefaces, a common or garden preface for weekdays, and a longer one on Sundays in honor of the Blessed Trinity. They're used, I fancy, to be a lot more variety. I have used a Dominican Missal before now in a Dominican church, and my impression was that in their rite, which, as I told you, has more of the Middle Ages surviving in it than ours, they had a fresh preface for nearly every day. After those variations, the preface always comes round to the same point. It always invites us to think about the blessed choirs of angels round God's throne, and to unite our praises with theirs. I like to think of it, as I told you once before, as a sort of gradual upward progress, first through one rank, then through another of celestial beings, till at last we reach the throne itself. When you're going home for a holiday, I bet some of you look out at the carriage windows and read the names of the stations to see how near you're getting to London. Burnham, Bucks, good, okay, we're near Slough, West Drayton, and Usley. That's the stuff. Look, there's Underground beginning, and that means Ealing Broadway, here's Hanwell... That's the asylum over on the right, and then the delicious slowing down into the platform at Paddington. Well, that's like that, or it ought to be, when we say the preface. Here are the angels, but we must get beyond the angels. Here are the dominations, and we want to get to the real world of the world, so here are the authorities, but we must get to the source of all authority. Here are the powers of heaven, but we want something stronger still. Here are the seraphim, so happy in their love, but their love is only a faint glow compared with that of the divine furnace of love which kindles them. Yes, we're glad to see them, and we wave them to, them to them all, but we can't stop. We want to get right to the middle of things, right up to God's throne. Their cries of adoration ring louder and louder as we go, and we join in as best we can with our ridiculous little squeaky trebles. They don't mind, and God won't mind. Suplici confessioni digentes. And then, like the engine suddenly, sh- suddenly shutting off steam just beyond the royal oak, the priest bends down and drops his voice in a low murmur, Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaod. If you are a musical and compose mass uh, when you grow up, don't encourage the choir to make the Sanctus into a great hubble blue. 
as some of them do. It's all wrong. There's nothing more splendid in the Mass than that bowing of the head, that dropping of the voice when the priest gets to that point. It's like walking in in a terrible blustering wind and then suddenly turning a corner and finding yourself under the lee of some great rock or in an absolute stillness. The whole dance of the Mass depends just here on getting that effect of sudden calm, sudden dying away of noise. The priest has been standing bolt upright, arms extended, talking in a loud voice as if he was shouting how you do to all the ranks of celestial beings and hierarchy as he shoots past them, and then quite suddenly the movement is reversed. He bends down, he talks in a murmur. Why? Thinking of his sins? No, not this time. In humility? No, not in humility this time, not even out of reference, quite. He bends down now that he has reached the very door of the heavenly temple and takes one look through, one look through the keyhole. And he says, shh, I've seen it. The glory of God that fills earth and heaven shining in front of me. Take off your shoes and let's go in very quietly on tiptoe, quite close. Don't pay any attention to those angels and dominations and people. Come up here and take a look. Don't you see? There. Take off your shoes, all of you. Let's go in very quietly on tiptoe.